The Old Testament uh, reading is from Isaiah 52, verse 13, to uh, chapter 53, verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there are many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he carried our infirmities he he picked up our infirmities and carried our sorrows yet we considered him stricken by god smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. For he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Well, in ancient hope, it's it's good to be with you this morning on the second Sunday of of Christmas. And today we we draw our Advent series to a close. And if, if, if you've been with us, We've looked at the O Antiphons, which are these ancient titles of Christ that are taken from the prophetic writings. 
ancient titles of Christ that, that we're perhaps most familiar with because of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And today we come to Christ as wisdom from on high. So before we turn to this text and look at what does it mean for Christ to be the very wisdom of God, let us turn to God in prayer. My God, our Father, thank you for this wonderful passage. A hundred sermons could not do this prophecy from Isaiah justice, Lord. There's, there's so much here. So much about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us to save us and to bring us back to you, Father. But I pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to this passage and would be able to shed light on even just one aspect of this passage that we could never exhaust. And we ask this, Lord, in the name of Christ, who is your wisdom and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the philosopher D.C. Schindler, he makes an interesting observation about beauty. He says that, that while different cultures affirm beauty in different ways, Schindler contends that there's a common agreement that, that stretches from classical cultures into much of modernity. And speaking of this cultural consensus, Schindler writes, however different the accounts of beauty seem to be, they agree with surprising regularity on presenting beauty in some respect as an often quite paradoxical unity of extremes that would otherwise seem to stand in irreconcilable opposition. Schindler traces this dynamic of, of unifying the seemingly opposite. This is beautiful. He traces it through thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, Aquinas, Kant, Hegel, and Heidegger. However, it's, it's the 18th century philosopher, historian, playwright, and poet Friedrich Schiller who gives the most explicit voice to the reality of beauty as the coincidence of opposites. Schiller sees each instance of beauty as the embrace of two parties that at first seem at utter odds with one another. In the words of, of Schindler, Schiller guides us into beauty, quote, as the unity of ever-changing life in definitely fixed form, of tension in calm, of action and passion, of creativity and receptivity, of universality and individuality, of seriousness and play, of the ideal and the real, of the eternal and the temporal, and so on. Beauty here is seen as the reconciliation of two parties that are wholly irreconcilable. It's, it's seen as the beauty as the union of what seems utterly opposed. It's, it's the embrace of apparent enemies. We might ask, what does this have to do with the present passage? Well, quite a bit. Because again, listen to this portion of the prophecy that's very near the beginning of the passage. God through Isaiah declares, 
My servant shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And yet, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so what do we find here? We find the juxtaposition of the high and the low, of the utmost majesty and the most abject humiliation, of the greatest glory and the most demeaning degradation. Here in this servant, we find the unity of opposites, of the highest and lowest. And and I'm speaking in superlative terms here. I mean the very highest and the very lowest, what seemed the most irreconcilable of parties. And what this means is that here in the servant of the Lord, we find beauty itself. We find beauty enfleshed, beauty incarnate. But beauty can't be separated from another key reality that we find in this passage. At the very beginning of the passage, which frames everything else that follows, we read, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. All that follows is a matter of this servant of the Lord acting wisely. As wisdom embodied, he is beauty made concrete. Here in this servant, we find true wisdom, and so we find true beauty. And this, I believe, is a key thrust of the passage. To be wise, you must see this servant of the Lord as beauty incarnate. To be wise, this servant must move your heart as he beautifully unites so much that seems opposed. And as we will see, as he unites two parties that actually are opposed, the holy God and a sinful people. And we are cued to this connection between beauty and wisdom in the prophecy's introduction. Again, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And the the verb here is is in what is called the the hithel form, and it can actually be translated either as act wise or make wise. And, And as we will see, both, I believe, are in view. And in fact, perhaps the most famous occurrence of this verb shares this form and is generally translated as to make wise. And we find this in the third chapter of Genesis. In the garden at Eden, at the point when things first go wrong, we read the following. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve looks at the tree, she looks at the fruit and decides the fruit is a delight to her eyes. She decides that it's beautiful, but there's more. She believes that this fruit is desirable to make one wise, and there's that verb and form that is shared with, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Here at the very beginning of Scripture, we see Adam and Eve equating the beautiful and the wise. 
What is truly beautiful will make one wise. But what's the connection here? Well, St. Augustine is helpful on this score. He gives us the missing middle term. On one side, we have beauty. We have things that we behold as beautiful, things that we perceive as delightful and desirable, just like Eve perceives the fruit as desirable. And on the other side, we have action. We have a way of, of acting. Again, wisdom is here described in active terms. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Wisdom here is about right action. It's about right conduct in the world. But what connects the object of beauty to actions of wisdom? Well, Augustine tells us it's love. He asks us in the confessions, do we love anything save what is beautiful? Love connects objects of beauty and wise actions. The theologian Sarah Stewart Craker, she ties these threads together well, actually commenting on Augustine's relationship between love and beauty, and she writes the following. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's a good one. She says, one cannot love what one does not find beautiful. To find something beautiful is to delight in it in some way. This attraction to beauty moves us. Desiring something beautiful means longing to know it more deeply and to be reshaped by it in new ways. Attraction to beauty initiates a dynamic process of learning and formation. One is fashioned by the love and by the pursuit of that object. One's actions follow upon one's perception of and desire for the beautiful. One's life takes on a certain character and trajectory as a result. What we find beautiful, we love. It's that simple. And what we love, we act to pursue. We want to know it. We want to embrace it. We want to enjoy it. What we love is what we seek. It's that simple. And so what we do, all that we do, is ultimately a function of what we love. And this gives our life a particular shape. What we find beautiful, especially what we find most beautiful, directs the path and road of our life. And this direction gives us a diagnostic. It's one way that we come to know if we are loving rightly and if we are perceiving beauty rightly. As Augustine asks, do you want to see the character of a person's love? Notice where it leads. And so let's apply this diagnostic to Adam and Eve. They see the fruit as desirable, as a delight to the eyes. They see the fruit as beautiful. And so they long for it. They love it. And this love moves them to act, as all loves do, but it's not a wise action. We know this because of where this love leads. This destination reveals to us the character of this love. They eat of the fruit. They disobey God. They hide from God. They lie to God, they blame one another, and ultimately, they die. In disobeying God, they turn from goodness. In hiding and lying and blaming, they turn from truth. And in dying, they turn from God, the very source of life. This love leads to death in all of its forms. 
And this reveals the true character of this love. Because what is at the core of this love? Well, we find its purpose and rationale and motive voiced in the temptation of the serpent. He tells them, when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The character of this love is to be God. It's to decide for oneself what is good and what is evil, what is beautiful and ugly, what is wise and unwise. The character of this love is to be God in God's place, to love oneself as God, as the most important being in the universe. It's self-worship. And this love leads us away from truth and goodness and life. Instead, it leads us into falsehood, in nothingness, in death. This is the ultimate character of this love. But what does this actually look like? How is it that we love wrongly? How is it that we make mistakes in perceiving what is beautiful? How is it that we want what is unwise, just like Adam and Eve? Well, it all comes down to a position that we take on another tree. The forbidden fruit came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The other tree is the cross. And rather than delighting in the fruit of this tree and seeing it as beautiful, we see it as an offense. We see it as appalling, as hideous, even horrid. We don't like it and we don't want it. Consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's Jewish contemporaries under the dominion of the Roman Empire, they wanted a powerful Messiah who would lead them to overthrow Roman rule. Yet Christ, this figure who dies on the Roman execution device of the cross, he appears weak. Paul's Greek contemporaries, what they sought was wisdom. They, like Eve, are looking to things other than God to make them wise. To them, Christ crucified is utter foolishness. But here on the cross, we find true power and true wisdom. In commenting on this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, Pastor Tim Keller, he explains how, how Christ crucified, how the gospel it both contradicts and completes each culture. Again, Paul's Jewish contemporaries, they want power, but they see Christ, who is true power, as weakness. Likewise, Paul's Greek contemporaries, they want wisdom, but they see Christ, who is true wisdom, as foolishness. And even though these cultures see Christ crucified as completely opposed to their greatest desire, Christ is the only true fulfillment of their heartfelt longing. And Keller then turns this diagnostic on us. What is the thing that our culture most desires? Freedom. And I think Keller is right here. And I think this desire for freedom, it holds for most political and social positions that Americans tend to define themselves by. What we want is freedom. 
But what does this freedom look like? The philosopher Charles Taylor is, is helpful here. He explains that bare choice, bare choice has taken the place of a sacred ideal for our culture. Free choice, we believe, cannot be violated in any way, shape, or form. And this rests on the assumption, Taylor tells us, that there are no barriers to my desire. And why should there be if I'm the one who determines what is good and evil, who determines what it means to be human in the world? And so the ethic we get here is what Taylor calls the ethic of, of authenticity. And he describes the moral force of that ethic like this. Each one has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And it is important to find and live out one's own against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. What this means is that my guide to the good life is just my own set of personal desires. Desires freed from the limitations that, that any other person, any institution, any other teaching might seek to place upon me. And if freedom, if it's primarily about bare choice that gives expression to any desire I might have, and if freedom means my own ability to determine what it means to be human, then yes, Christ crucified is against this notion of freedom. If this is what we desire, then we will not perceive Christ crucified as beautiful. But we have to remember that choice is a tool. We practice choice in order to choose something. To make choice ultimate is like making the roads that we travel on more important than the destinations they take us to. It's like making a toolbox more important than the construction projects the tools are meant to do. It's like making pots and pans more important than the food that they're meant to cook. Roads exist to take us to destinations. Tools exist for the sake of building something. Pots and pans exist for the sake of meals. There are means to an end, and the same is true for choice. Choice exists in free creatures like us so that we will choose the good. But making choice ultimate is like valuing roads over destinations, tools over construction projects, pots and pans over the food that they're meant to cook. This is backwards. Think about it. What if a pharmacy had the largest selection of medications in the world, but it didn't actually have the one medicine that you needed? Would you go there? Of course not. It doesn't matter how big their selection is if they don't actually have the one and only medicine that you need. Well, in the same way, choice does us no good if we can't choose what is actually good for us. Choice is a tool for choosing and attaining and getting the good. And so freedom in this sense is the freedom to order and direct our lives to the good. But if this is true freedom, then choice is not ultimate. But what is ultimate is our true good. And if this is true freedom, and if there is a specific good for humans, then our ethics can't be one of authenticity, of deciding for ourselves how we should live, of deciding what good and evil is. But what is it that establishes this true freedom? What is it that seems like the very opposite of what our culture desires, but is actually its proper fulfillment? But Paul tells us it's Christ 
crucified. But we're in the same position as Adam and Eve. When we see the fruit that falsely promises the freedom to be God, to determine good and evil on our own, we see it as a delight to the eyes. We find it beautiful, and we believe that that alone will make us wise. And so what we do is take and eat. However, when we look at the tree of the cross and the fruit that hangs from its barbarous branches, Christ Jesus, we see precisely what Isaiah describes in today's passage. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is what we see when we look at Christ on the cross. We see nothing that delights our eyes. We perceive no beauty. We certainly don't see Christ, that fruit that hangs from the tree of the cross, as what will make us wise or powerful or free. And here is the basic challenge of the Christian life. Can you see Christ crucified as beautiful? Can Christ crucified delight your eyes? In speaking on this dynamic specifically, Augustine tells us Christ's beauty surpasses all other human beauty. Why do we love him? What are we loving when we hear that he suffered for us? Crucified limbs, a torn side, or his charity? Yes, charity falls in love with charity. He loved us in order to win our answering love. What we see when we look at Christ crucified is love itself. We see Christ's desire for us as his treasured beauty. We see Christ acting on his great love for the beauty that he sees in his people, and this action is wise action. Again, Isaiah tells us, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. But what is this wisdom, and why is it beautiful? Well, remember the character of the love of Adam and Eve. It was the desire to be God in God's place, the desire of the human to determine good and evil, the desire of the human to be God. But when we look at Christ, what we see is exactly the opposite. We don't see the human attempting to be God in God's place. We see God actually becoming human in our place. And we see Christ himself even as suffering the punishments that the disordered love of Adam and Eve, the disordered love of all of us, ultimately leads to. Again, this love leads us away from the truth. And so Christ is condemned by lies. And Isaiah tells us that he not even opens his mouth. The love of Adam and Eve and all of us leads away from goodness. And so Christ, he suffers violence. But Isaiah tells us that he offers no violence in return. And indeed, Christ suffers the greatest violence of all, as ultimately the love of Adam and Eve leads to death because it leads us away 
from the source of life, God himself. And so Christ on the cross is beaten and killed. He's torn and stabbed and humiliated and mocked. Christ in his beauty, he comes to us. But we try our best to make him unseemly, to make him horrendous, to make him a horrid sight. But we must learn to see beauty here. As God through Isaiah tells us again and again and again and again and again in this passage, Christ is bearing all of this for us. To cite only one part of this prophecy that declares this truth. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This is love. This is beauty. This is wisdom. Why is this love? Well, it shows us the depth for which God will go to bring us back to himself. God the Son becomes human and suffers all that we deserve upon the cross and freely offers us his righteousness, the righteousness of a perfectly wise and beautiful life. Why is this beauty? Because we see here the greatest union of opposites. Christ is brought low, but after his death, as Isaiah tells us, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Christ suffers death and humiliation. But Christ is raised and ascends to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. In Christ, we see both the low of what we deserve and the great high of Christ's kingship. In Christ, we see the heights of God's justice when we look at Christ crucified. For the cross is what we alone deserve because of that justice. But we also see the depths of God's mercy. For Christ has willingly borne this perfect justice on our behalf. Christ crucified unites both perfect justice and perfect wisdom. But the unity of opposites does not stop here. As per 1 Corinthians 1, we see that power comes from what the world sees as weakness. True power is Christ laying down his life for us. In Christ, we see that true wisdom comes from what the world sees as foolishness. True wisdom is not humans attempting to be God, but God actually becoming human. In Christ, we see that true freedom comes from what the world sees as bondage. We see that true freedom is doing what must be done in order to bring about the good that God intends. And Christ freely follows this even to the point of death. Christ is free for our good. And he offers us the greatest good of all, reconciled fellowship between God and humanity. Christ makes us free to be united with the greatest good of all, God himself. He offers us the beautiful reconciliation of parties that were once opposed, the holy God and a sinful people. And if we can't see this as beautiful, then our eyes are closed to true beauty. So then, what is our response? Well, we must learn to see Christ crucified hanging from the tree of the cross in the same way that Adam and Eve saw the forbidden fruit. 
as a delight to the eyes desirous to make one wise. Again, Isaiah tells us, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. But this can also be translated as, Behold, my servant shall make wise. If we see Christ as beautiful and so love him, Christ will make us wise. But if we can't see Christ crucified as beautiful, then we will never love him. Again, as Augustine asks us, do we love anything save what is beautiful? So then, before we ask what we should do, we should ask ourselves, what should we love? What should we find beautiful? When you think of beauty, what is it you think of? And so often our culture puts forward a kind of pornographic ideal as beauty. And if this is where our mind goes when we think of beauty, we will be wrong. We will be unwise. And if you struggle with this, if this is where your mind goes, if this is what you love and desire, ask the Holy Spirit to help you find these images, this ideal, as unseemly, as horrid, as horrendous. Because what you find beautiful, it's that that you will love. And what you love, you will act to get. And so ask the Holy Spirit to give you love above all else for Christ crucified. Aesthetics, that field of philosophy that explores beauty, is really a matter of ethics. Aesthetics is ethics. Perceiving beauty rightly and loving rightly is an ethically formative practice. We act sinfully because we perceive beauty wrongly and we act on that foolish love. But in Christ crucified, we see beauty enfleshed, love embodied, wisdom incarnate. And so the single greatest thing that you can do to grow in your Christian life for the new year is simply to better see Christ as beautiful. And this, I guarantee, will make you wise. This means that wisdom begins with receiving, acknowledging that Christ has lived the perfectly wise life on your behalf, and he's taken upon himself all the punishments that you deserve for a life of foolishness. And this means that wisdom begins with receiving. It begins with acknowledging our absolute need upon Christ. It begins with faith, with trust that God in Christ has done everything, everything on our behalf. And yes, this will look like weakness and foolishness and bondage to the world. But ask yourself, do you ever act in ways that appear weak or foolish or stifled in the eyes of others? Do you ever do things that are unexplainable by the standards of our culture? Does your generosity or self-sacrifice or the way that you use your schedule or the way you treat your coworkers or the way you use your resources or the way you treat your family and friends or the way that you practice hospitality, do these ever strike others as weak or foolish or stifled? If not, then you might be operating according to the wisdom of the world, the very foolishness that Christ came to undo. And what about freedom, especially if this is something that we're prone to misperceive? Well, a scene from an American novel is helpful here. 
Consider the character of Carl Lindstrom in Willa Cather's novel, O Pioneers, which was originally published in 1913. Carl, a, a childhood friend of Alexandra Bergson, he's traveled across the country seeking fortune. And this is in contrast to the enduring commitment of Alexandra to the place and people of the Nebraska prairie. And thinking on these things, Carl, he says the following words to Alexandra, words that I think are even more insightful today. Carl says, freedom so often means that one isn't needed anywhere. Here, you're an individual. You have a background of your own. You will be missed. But off there in the cities, there are thousands of rolling stones like me. We are all alike. We have no ties. We know nobody. When one of us dies, they scarcely know where to bury him. Our landlady and the delicatessen man are our mourners. We have no place, no people of our own. This is ultimate freedom. If we define freedom as the full rejection of any limitation of our choices by other people. To be wholly free is to be free to choose to be wholly alone, traveling from here to there and letting no one at all make a claim upon you. True freedom in this sense is not to be needed by anyone. True freedom in this sense is to be utterly alone. Again, we see the character of love by where it leads, and this is where our culture's notion of freedom ultimately takes us to. So then, ask yourself two questions. Who needs you? And are you letting yourself need other people? How many people in this congregation in this city need you? And how many do you need? How many people are placing limits upon you by their needs? How many people are limiting your ability for bare choice? True freedom is the freedom to lovingly serve and commune with God and neighbor. But this is a freedom that limits your choices at the very same time that it grows you into what God intends you to be. True freedom is the freedom to become truly and fully human. But this can only happen in the context of communion with God and neighbor, a context that destroys bare choice. If very few people need you, or if you need very few people here, then perhaps you have been taken in by a false notion of freedom. I recently read part of a film review, and the reviewer makes this sad assessment about the film's main character. She avoids every choice that can narrow her future. She avoids every choice that can narrow her future. And so let's ask ourselves, are you making choices that leave your choices for the future open at all costs? An approach that exalts choice above everything else. Or are you making decisions that really do limit your future as you commit to a particular place and people and community and vocation and church? This would actually be a great New Year's resolution to have a limited range of choices for next year because of how deeply you've committed yourself to community this year. If you have just as many choices for what you would like to do or where you would like to go, 
next year as you do for this year, then perhaps you have been deceived by a false view of freedom. For instance, to be a part of a church community, you do need to limit your choices for Sunday morning. You need to be worshiping at the church. And perhaps you should consider limiting a few nights per month to participating in a small group, for instance. Trust me, the church is a community that has a number of ways to limit your choice choices and future options. And remember, true freedom and wisdom and beauty and love just is Christ crucified. And so, in closing, let us learn to look on Christ as such. And we really will find that we perceive beauty rightly, that we love rightly, and that we act wisely in all things. O oh Lord, help Christ crucified to stir our hearts. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've given to us. Thank you for Christ crucified. Thank you that your servant shall act wisely and will make wise. Father, forgive us for when we look at the cross and we don't see beauty, when we don't esteem Christ, but we reject him. But Lord, help us to see Christ crucified as truly beautiful. Help us to see him as truly wise and help us to love him. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.